I uh, texted my wife a few days ago and I said, babe, I need a funny story about a time where I didn't listen to you and you were right. Uh, because I know that I have a horrible memory, and why would I remember anything like that? Em embarrassment and failure, that's the kind of memory you want to shove way down in the basement of your memory. But I was sure that she had like a journal full of them. Uh, she texted me back almost immediately, and she said, every day of our lives. <laughs> but then she couldn't think of a specific time either, and so I'm actually glad that she's not keeping score. <laughs> uh, you know, it's, it's relatively easy to actually listen to your spouse and do what they want you to do if, if you're trying. Uh, they hopefully are communicating and telling you or at least giving you like a, a honey-do list. But how do you know you're doing what God wants you to do? Uh, have, have you ever asked this question before? I uh, sometimes get this question from students as they're moving uh, out of high school into college and they're considering like which major or school or which job to get into. And the Bible does not tell them whether they should go to UCLA or USC, though I know some of you have strong opinions. Yes. <laughs> what does God want me to do? Can I miss out on God's will for my life? Is it possible to make a choice and to move forward without God? And so that's the question I want to put in front of us today, um, because for the past eight sermons, we've reflected on what it looks like to move forward with God. But today I want to turn that upside down a bit and to reflect on what it looks like to move forward without God. And so that is the central topic of what we're talking about. What does it look like to move forward without God? And the, the first question that I think we have to answer is, can we move forward without God? Because there are many passages in scripture which speak to the fact that God will never leave us. Uh, Psalm 139 says, where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If, my, if I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. God is everywhere. You can't escape him. But he allows you to leave him. And I, I think this is illustrated really well in the story of the prodigal son in Luke 15. Um, many of you know this story, and so I want to read I want to, to read the first half of it to, to get, us, get us in there. So starting in Luke chapter 15, verse 11, Jesus said, A man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that is coming to me. And so he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey to a distant country. And there he squandered his estate in wild living. Now, when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in the country, and he began doing without. And so he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country. And he sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he longed to have his fill from the food that the pigs were eating. 
and no one was giving him anything. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired laborers have more than enough bread, but here I am dying from hunger. I will set out and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and in your sight I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired laborers. And so he set out and came to his father. But when he was still a long way off, his father saw him, felt compassion for him, ran, embraced him, and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf, slaughter it, and let's eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. And so, to summarize that whole, whole chunk of scripture that we just read, a, a son demands early inheritance from his father. He takes it and leaves. And we see how he spends his inheritance in a ruinous way. And then he goes back to the father, repentant, and hoping to be just hired back as a slave. And this is incredibly scandalous. We've heard the story many times, but it's incredibly scandalous. It would, it would be like me asking my parents to cash out their savings, their retirement, sell their home, give me half. And then I went and lived in a Vegas hotel for a year until I had nothing left. And that basic metaphor through that story right there in this parable, it's, it's very basic. And it's what it looks like to move forward without God. And I think it's an excellent picture to have in mind when we talk about our separation from God and what it looks like to move forward without him. And then I think the question that becomes pressing for most people is, can Christians walk away from God? Um, if I have believed in, Jira, in, in if I have believed in Jesus, and if God's spirit has worked in me, can I walk away? Well, if you could not leave him, if you could not walk away, then there would be no warnings in Scripture. Um, you know those like little silica gel packs that sometimes come in products to help keep them dry? Uh, you know how they say on them in big, bold letters, do not eat? And you're like, yeah, of course I won't eat the silica gel pack that was living inside this pair of shoes. Well, the warning is there because somebody messed up. <laughs> uh, don't even get me started on Tide Pods. <laughs> uh, there are a lot of warnings in Scripture. Like, honestly, all over the place. Uh, there are so many that I had uh, a hard time choosing which to highlight. Um, but I, I have a few that I'd like to read. Uh, the first one from 1 Timothy 6.10 says, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and have pierced themselves with many griefs. From Matthew 7, do not judge so that you will not be judged. For in the way that you judged, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. And beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly are ravenous wolves. And still in Matthew 7, uh, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast 
and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Leave me, you who practice lawlessness. Just a few. Just because you have professed faith, uh, just because you have been a Christian for 40 years, doesn't mean you can't get off track. Doesn't mean you can't be deceived. Think about the uh, Apostle Peter for a moment. Um, He's one of the main leaders of the church. Uh, He was a follower of Jesus for more than 20 years when Paul writes this about him in Galatians 2 verse 11. He says, when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Uh, Peter himself had, had been deceived and was living out of sync with the good news of Jesus. Anyone is susceptible. Pastors, leaders, teachers, parents, anyone. And now I I have incredible trust in in the leadership here at Nova. I work with some amazing men. And and part of the reason that I trust them is because they have an awareness of the temptation of sin, of the pull of money and sex and power, and they actively work to keep those desires in check and to cultivate lives of deep humility and openness. Um, But it is not like this everywhere. I'm sure that you can think of Christians who have tragically made headlines in the news, even recently, because of their notable sins. It is extremely disillusioning for Christians and non-Christians alike when Christian leaders don't look like Christ, when they're characterized by sexual immorality, pride, or the love of money and power. The most recent example of this is someone whose teaching I respected, a man named Ravi Zacharias, who is a famous Christian apologist, whose videos I know that we have watched here at Nova. And one of the most disappointing things that has come out about his life was the fact that multiple incidents from his now revealed long history of sexual abuse that he inflicted upon other women were actually brought to the attention of others in his ministry years ago. And they did not take it seriously. And they did not hold him accountable. And they allowed his abuse to continue. That is incredibly disappointing. And a warning for us all, I think. So do you... Have people in your life that will tell you when you're off track, like Paul did for Peter. Galatians 6.1 says, Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you may also be tempted. James 5.19 says, My brothers and sisters, if, if one of you should wander from the truth, someone should bring that person back. Now, a lot of us are staying home more often because of the pandemic and whatnot. And my wife and I started uh, playing an online game that we used to play. 
And uh, we convinced some of our friends to join us so that we could hang out with them online together. Um, and it's a team-based game where you're heavily reliant upon one another working together to accomplish different goals. And it's, it's been really fun. Uh, but one of the problems, uh, especially at the beginning, is that uh, everyone was really new to the game, which also means they're kind of bad at the game. <laughs> there, is a, there is a great learning curve. And so as the more experienced player myself, I would give advice and coach as much as possible. And some people are really receptive and appreciative of that. And some people aren't as much. Uh, some people want to learn from their mistakes and are happy to take direction. And other people would prefer to just blissfully run by themselves into the enemy team and die. <laughs> and so when it comes to the game of life, that we're all playing together for you and me. Do you want to be helped? Or do you want to do things your own way? Do you avoid criticism? Do you only listen to voices that tell you what you want to hear? Do you have people in your life who will tell you when you're off track? There is a great deal of self-evaluation that we can also do, and uh, that should always start with holding ourselves up to Scripture. What standard has the Bible set before me? And so we ask ourselves more questions. Again, are we in the Scriptures? Are we reading this Word and living out the realities that Jesus set for us in the Sermon on the Mount? Are we heeding the wise advice of the apostles and catching their warnings and their stories that are meant to make us evaluate ourselves? As we're in the scriptures, it gives us uh, many examples of people who have messed up. The Bible is full of people who have messed up, of people who have decided they want to move forward without God. And something interesting happens in all of these stories. In in almost every story, there is a pattern. God will warn people to choose a good thing and to stay away from a bad thing. And then the people decide that they want to do their own thing, usually the very bad thing that God warned them against. And then, here's the interesting thing, God lets them have what they want. Uh, there's this uh, little video on the internet of uh, a little kid who really wants to eat an apple except it's not an apple, it's an onion. And so his mom says, no, you shouldn't eat that. It's not an apple, it's an onion. But how often does logic work with emotional toddlers? Hmm. The kid throws a tantrum, still wants to eat it, and so the mom makes the objectively right call, whips out her phone and says, okay, go for it. And so we get this glorious video of a toddler going to town on this onion with like confusion and disgust, but also sheer determination with bite after bite into this onion. And she let him have what he wanted. <laughs> uh, there's a really interesting passage in uh, Romans chapter one, where it talks about the wrath of God. Heavy topic. Uh, in verse 18, it says, the wrath of God is revealed. And how is it revealed? Uh, well, there's a threefold repetition in Romans 1. Verse 24 says, God gave them up to the lust of their hearts. Verse 26, God gave them up to degrading passions. And verse 28, God gave them up to a depraved mind. 
God lets them have what they want. He gives them over to destructive desires. And so what happens when we decide to move forward without God? He gives us what we want. God's wrath is revealed, and you can see it happening right now. Human nature left unchecked. That is a part of his wrath. God letting humans destroy themselves. God's wrath is something that begins now, and it manifests in our freedom to sin, which breaks us down and destroys ourselves. We need to be saved from ourselves, and we need God's Spirit to save us from ourselves. Listen to this passage from Romans chapter 8, verse 5. It says, For those who are in accord with the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are in accord with the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace, because the mind set on the flesh is hostile towards God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so, and those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Our hearts, if left unattended, lead us to move forward without God. A lot of people walk dogs here on the campus at Nova. Um, and have you ever seen somebody walking like a really big dog and they have basically no control over the dog? The dog is literally just pulling in whatever direction it wants, like squirrel, I'm going over here. Um, and the owner, it's just at the mercy of this dog on the leash. So it is with our hearts. And we need God's spirit to tame our hearts. We need the transformation of the spirit to redirect our heart's affections. When we realize this, when we come to the end of ourselves, hopefully it leads us to repentance. Just like those who heard this news in Acts chapter 2, verse 37, which I'll read to you, it says, now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what are we to do? And Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repentance. It's this process of turning away from our old life and turning towards God so that we can move forward with him because we no longer want to go on a trajectory that leads away from him. Just like the prodigal son repenting and turning back towards home after coming to a place of ruin and hoping that the father would still accept him. And when you find yourself repenting from that old way and putting your faith in Jesus, you get baptized. <laughs> and we have some baptisms coming up. 
And so if God is moving in you and tugging at your heart and you haven't been baptized yet, talk to myself or one of the other staff members or elders. Baptism is a public declaration that God is doing something inside of you and that you have chosen repentance so that you may walk in the way of Jesus. I think many of us here at Nova have taken this step of personal repentance and put our faith in Jesus and have even the spiritual discipline of continually looking inward and repenting daily. But I want to keep pushing that forward. And I, I want to talk about something that you could call collective repentance or corporate repentance or intercession. Uh, we as modern Western Christians, we live in a highly individualistic society where it's all about me and my sin and my relationship with God and the fact that Jesus died for me. You catch the pattern. Uh, but the Bible's cultural context would be thrown for a loop by that kind of language because they just thought much more collectively and corporately. We're all in this together. And so I want us to look at a, a prayer from Daniel chapter 9. And you're actually going to dive deeper into this in your small groups this week if you work through the sermon notes. Um, it's a prayer of Daniel who, uh, throughout the narrative, has been portrayed as being one of the few righteous and good people of Israel. And so he is good. But listen to how he prays in verse 5 that I'll read. He says, We have sinned. We have done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, even turning aside from your commandments and ordinances. And then he just he goes on and on in this beautiful and long prayer using this language of we and us. And he repents on behalf of the collective people. And I, I think that we too could learn from Daniel's example to confess not just our sins, but others. And while we do this, I think we'll end up looking inside of our own hearts to see that their sin is also my sin. Because we're, we're not just saying those people over there need to repent. Uh, because it's really easy to point fingers at people like Ravi Zacharias. People with sin that's public and so much worse than what I've done or to point fingers at the enemies that we have made out of those who don't think like me on the political left or right, and to say that they are the problem. Or to judge even those in our own community that we deem are not Christian enough compared to us. The fact of the matter is, no, no matter how holy we are, no matter how good we are, none of us is righteous. Everyone has the inclination to move forward without God, which means that I and, and the other people that I judge for sinning worse than me are in the same boat, and it's sinking, and we all need rescue. We all need Jesus, because only he is righteous, and we all need to repent from our sin and finger-pointing and judging and feeding an us-versus-them dynamic is just not helpful. We need to work on collective repentance and intercession.
In our 40-day devotional that we have been going through, Ella Todd wrote a wonderful piece that we read yesterday. Uh, it was in reflection on another part of Romans, but I thought it fit so well here. She writes on Romans 3 and says, This passage offers assurance that God knows our sin inside and out. He knows that we stray from him and that we make more mistakes than we could ever count. Yet he still redeems us of everything through faith. It shows the true scope of God's grace towards our immorality and urges readers to understand that no one is righteous based on their own virtues, but righteousness is graciously given to us through our faith in Jesus. We are all sick, as this passage grimly indicates. But in the darkness and uncertainty of this sickness, there is wonderful news of a cure in God's grace. Isn't, isn't that a perfect word for us? <laughs> we all need to be saved from our unchecked desires. If even people like the Apostle Peter can mess up, so can we. And so do you have people in your life who will point out where you're wrong? And are you in the scriptures to guide your mind? And do you heed its many warnings? In what ways have you been moving forward without God? And like the prodigal son, may we all reflect on our own lives, come to the end of ourselves, repent, and turn to Jesus. Amen. Amen.